You're listening to the Animation Addicts Podcast with the Rotoscopers, episode 156, Sword and the Stone, Return of the Disney Theories. This episode was brought to you by the patrons. That's right. To find out more about how you can get your favorite movie nominated, head on over to rotoscopers.com slash Patreon. Welcome to the Animation Addicts Cast with Roscoe. We are your hosts, the ladies, Morgan and Chelsea, at your service. By Jove. Look at us go. <laughs> that was one of my favorite things about this movie is the fun little quips. Yes, yes. There will be lots of quips and fun things to talk about for sure. Indeed. Indeed. Indubitably. But before we get into that, let's just give a little breakdown. Welcome, guys. This is the Animation Addicts Podcast. It's about all things animation. We talk about films past and present. And majority of the time, they are chosen by the patrons of the Animation Addicts Podcast. And they get to pick the films and we review them. So that's exactly what we are doing today. So I want to give a shout out to Chloe Boyd. She was the $10 patron who submitted this film, The Sword and the Stone, to be reviewed. So we're very excited about that. And thank you, Chloe. Thanks, Chloe. We also want to give a shout out to our newest patron, Leah Sloan, or Leah Sloan. Not sure. It can be pronounced both ways. I'll go with the British way, Leah. And thank you for joining. We're excited to have you. So before we go into this and talk about the sword in the stone, let's do the nerdy couch discussion. Yay! We are having a very special moment of our show today. We are first off, we are going to introduce you to one of our wonderful patrons. We've got Alex Pilgrim. Hey, Alex. Hey, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm pretty good this morning. Very happy to talk to you guys. Hello. Hi. So tell us about yourself. I am a third-year law student living in Athens, Georgia. Is wonderful and sunny down here after uh, after a few storms that you might have heard of rolling around the southeast uh, but in my free time which I don't have that much of I love to watch animated movies and that is why I'm here I have always loved it and have continued it well into adulthood as I imagine most people listening have you are a fellow animation addict. You are close to our heart. You are our friend, our patron. So that's awesome. that's super awesome. So third year law student. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, it is. Oh, yeah. What do Done you plan soon. for when you graduate? Um, I will be working in Atlanta after I graduate. The hiring cycle, thankfully, kind of uh, tends to set you up with where you're going to be working before you graduate. So luckily, I know what next step is. That's nice of them. Yeah, that's one of the few favors I do for you. <laughs> Chelsea, 
Are we going to do Catch and Fire? I was thinking we should. Are you familiar with Catch and Fire, Alex? I am familiar with it. Okay, perfect. Whenever we do have a new guest on the show, we like to do a quick segment called Catch and Fire, where it's just rapid fire questions. And really, first thing comes to mind, you have to do that question. So are you ready for Catch and Fire, Alex? I'm so ready. Well then, how about a quick round of Catch and Fire? Catch and Fire? You mean me? You're the only one with enough c- 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 courage. <laughs> All right, off we go. So, first animated film you remember seeing? Oh, gosh. Um, probably. <laughs> it might be Snow White, honestly. <laughs> Going with the original. Favorite cartoon growing up? Uh, Rugrats. Favorite animated movie? Beauty and the Beast, hands down. Favorite animator or artist? Uh, probably Glenn Keane. Classic animation or CGI? Classic animation. Favorite animated animation studio? Uh, you know, definitely Disney. <laughs> Disney or Pixar? Uh, Disney. <laughs> Leica or Ghibli? Uh, Ghibli. I've seen more. Songs or no songs? Oh, songs. Of course. <laughs> Gets up for the next part. Disneyland or Disney World? Disney World. People or anthropomorphic? Mm, that might be a tie, but I'll go with people. Going with your, with your crew. <laughs> Stitch or Tinkerbell? Oh, <laughs> Stitch. Mickey, Donald, or Goofy? Ooh, Donald. Huey, Dewey, or Louie? Do they have differences? Um, which one's Colors. the green one? <laughs> <laughs> they have colors. Nice. And who would win in a fight? King Fergus or Stoic Sevast? Uh, probably I'll go with Fergus. I like his sense of humor, even if that might not be helpful. <laughs> He'll make him laugh to death. <laughs> <laughs> Rasputin or Dr. Facilier? <laughs> Oh, I know he's ridiculous, but rescue. <laughs> nice. Okay, and our final question, one of the most important of all. This will We will judge you based on the answer that you pick for this. Which would you rather watch? Hunchback 2, Cinderella 2, Return of Jafar, or Norma the Mork? Uh, there are too many choices in that question. No, it's. I think the best in terms of quality might be... Return of Jafar, but I just really like Cinderella has a special place in my heart, so I'm going to go with that one. Even if it's a bad sequel. It's, yes, you you said it, not me. So there (laughs) we go, everybody. That is Alex. Thank you for doing our catching fire. <laughs> and now let's jump into our mini main event, which is the Nerdy Couch discussion. Chelsea, you want to introduce the topic? I would love to. All right. So this has actually been a question that has been on our our episode document for since the beginning. I feel like this is one of those questions we just haven't ever been able to get to. But I'm so glad we're going to be able to finally know what our thoughts are on this subject. So the question is songs in animation. So we're talking about throughout the ages from the beginning in the 30s and the 40s all the way to the 90s and today. Are they necessary, and why so many? 
I think they were, if not necessary, I think in the early um, animated movies, they were a big part of why they were successful and why they kind of captured audiences. Like Snow White, I think, wouldn't have been the success it was if it didn't have music in there. Um, I say that even though I don't know if any of the songs particularly stand out in my mind. Um, but I think it kind of like went along with the, oh yeah, (laughs) (laughs) like little snippets come and go. But like, I think growing up, I was never like humming Snow White songs to myself. And yet like it's (laughs) very much part of the whole package of that movie. Yeah, I would say it goes back to even like the like when the talkies were first introduced. Like it was such a novelty to have sound to it. So it was and even when they didn't, um, they would always have some type of a ragtime music or whatever, some type of music going on during the film. So I feel like that was such an integral part of it that they just had to throw that in there. Um also is great for monetization later on when you're selling music sheet notes and things like that. But it's just interesting to see how music has changed in films and specifically Disney movies since the beginning. So like Snow White, Sleeping Beauty, like did Tchaikovsky and all these very classical styles, but then moved into the, but they also had the very like, do, 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 bippity boppity boo, you know? (laughs) So I know it's so interesting how based on the topic of the film, how they just kind of shift and and bring in new elements. I've always thought that was fun. Yeah, and I think, like, Snow White and Cinderella and some of those early movies had, like, almost, like, they were very fun, almost bouncy-style songs. I mean, you did have, you know, several songs that were, you know, maybe slower or more, more elegant, but there was very much kind of, much like the early movies had a lot more sort of, like, visual gags and, and jokes in there. Um that was kind of, I feel like that was mirrored in the style of music that they would write. Sleeping, well, Sleeping Beauty is kind of out on its own since some of its music was based on an actual opera, wasn't it? The ballet. Yeah. Oh, yes. That one definitely didn't have any of that. <laughs> there were no mice singing in Sleeping Beauty. <laughs> so one thing that I was doing as I was researching this is I pulled up a list of all the song, all the animated films that have songs. So if you guys were to just make a quick prediction, how many animated films out there do you think are considered musicals? Hmm. A um, hundred? I don't know. <laughs> okay, hundred. I was going to say something in that ballpark, but maybe I'll go a little bit lower. Um, 50. So according to this list, 200, nearly 200 films are considered, you know, animated musicals now then it now Interesting. it starts the list off you know alphabetical order they do numbers first so 101 dalmatians two patches london adventure starts us off which really goes <laughs> to show the quality of animated musical that we have devolved into over the years oh, no. um, and there is a, a large chunk of these films which are barbie films so there you have it but that just goes to show that even these bc list <laughs> the list type of films it became the norm that they needed to become musicals and have songs in them which you know i think there was a period of time especially for disney uh you know the 60s 70s where 
an early 80s where a lot of the films didn't have songs. They'd moved away from that. They were more just telling, you know, just the story. Well, I can't even say that because I think of Rescuers, that has songs. I think of Robin Hood, that has songs. But they're not. Well, I mean, Rescuers are not really singing. Yeah, it has. Robin Hood, they are. Is Robin Hood on that list? Robin Hood is on the list. Okay. Yep. But we do return to form uh, in the 90s, which, of course, the Disney Renaissance kicks us off on that. And I think that brought the Broadway-style musical, which which really then became um, something that everyone was really trying to emulate and do. I was looking at another list, which was called Best of the Rest, 19, the best 19 non-Disney animated musicals. So I'm like, okay. The bottom of the list is Legend of Oz, Dorothy's Return, which I'm like, okay. Followed very quickly by Thumbelina. But the number <laughs> one best non-Disney uh, musical, which I'm like, okay, it's, it's got to be Prince of Egypt, right? It's got to be Prince of no. They put the road to El Dorado. What? Like, no. no, you are done. I am done with this list. But what? <laughs> this I have no respect for this person who made this list. <laughs> I mean, you know, sometimes opinions are objectively wrong, <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes they're just wrong. <laughs> and I love that movie, but no, it's definitely not better than like Anastasia and Prince of Egypt, and like there's so many more that I can name that are way better than that. Oh yeah, I think we need to make our own list. We do. Oh, show. Why do you think there is this need now that if you're coming out with an animated film, there needs to be songs? Well, I think, well, I mean, Pixar really has gone a different way with that. For the most part, their films don't have songs, but I feel like everyone else tries to copy Disney in a way and has tried to implement songs. I think part of it is how successful the disney renaissance specifically was because i think if those films in the early 90s late 80s hadn't happened and hadn't been just such smash hits based on some of the movies that were around that time a little bit earlier i think animation might have maybe detached itself a little bit or or moved away from songs or at least them being necessary but the broadway form in the in like Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, all those. Honestly, it was a lot more successful than in animated films than that format was for Broadway itself. It's kind of yeah. funny. Yeah. Like you never hear like Broadway. I mean, it has its people, but it's never had that huge of an audience compared to the rest of the population. But then all these you know Disney Renaissance movies came out, and everybody knows those, and everybody loves those my sister hates musicals like actual stage musicals and yet is just as into disney as i am and somehow when it's in an animated form everyone's on board and i don't know why that is yeah you know i think that like you were saying because of the huge success of the disney stuff in the early 90s that everyone tried to copy and ride that wave and i think it took about 15 to 20 years where then other studios started realizing oh maybe we don't have to do the songs because i think if we look back at the songs from the past 10 or the animated films from the past 10 years especially non-disney they're not musicals yeah and i think it was like after Disney had so much success in that time period, I think everyone was copying everything Disney did um, in their sort of winning formula. And I, the songs were a huge part of that. And so everybody had to copy the songs, just like they had to copy the basic sort of princess fairy tale storyline. 
So talking about today, I think an important film to talk about is Frozen, because Frozen was a film that, you know, of course, there was Tangled, it had songs. But when Frozen came out, it definitely was a musical, but it, it was kind of a different style. It was, again, a Broadway style. But you think of that first 30 minutes of that song, and I feel like the majority of it is singing, mm-hmm. um, especially the one song where it's the coronation day. For the first time in forever, it just keeps going and going and has different nuances to it. And I think that's because they brought in Broadway people again and they did what Broadway folks do best and they created very Broadway-esque songs. And I'm not saying that I think others are going to copy that necessarily, but I feel like for Disney, that kind of stands out as another moment in time for me. There's also different rules that go with Broadway that for the shows that work, to be able to put them into animated form, it has a lot more relevance to people because they it's, it takes you out of normal life. So you can, it's a totally different world. It's, you expect the laws of nature not to be totally gone, like totally adhered to. And so it adds that little bit of, of just funness. But then also, I just felt like with Frozen, like they were, they'd gotten so good at created, creating just, smash hit smash hit that they really were able to take that formula and put it back into what we are able to ingest i guess yeah and that that makes a lot of sense now that i think about it because a lot of people i know that don't like stage musicals or other types of musicals and i think it's i think honestly that's a large majority of the population i think part of what people can't get around is the fact that you have this disconnect between you have real people on a stage or in like a live action movie and like one second they're walking around acting like they're in normal daily life and then they break out into song and people like a lot of people don't like that they think that seems weird but then once you're in an animated movie you're not expecting things to play out like they would in like ordinary everyday life and so you've already gotten over that obstacle and songs just kind of seem par for the course yeah so where do we think the future is going to go for animated musical well frozen was so so successful and yet i haven't we haven't seen a lot of movies since then it hasn't been long but it's been a few years long enough for there to be some copycats and you really haven't seen anything trying to do that exact same what it what frozen did even moana wasn't nearly as successful as frozen yeah and i can't put my finger on it but something about the songs in that movie weren't just weren't the same type of song as was in frozen frozen was so broadway so contemporary broadway Mm mm-hmm and Moana, I think, was a little bit closer to, well, Moana had Lin-Manuel Miranda, and it was very Hamilton mm-hmm. in some of its songs, but then not all of them. Some of them were very, like, you know, Moana's I Want song was straight out of the 90s, I think. Oh, yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's almost as if you could feel and totally imagine the suits in the room saying, but we need one of those songs like yes. Little Mermaid. <laughs> it, it was it gave me it, it was nothing like part of your world in terms of just like the melody of the song. But it gave me very strong part of your world vibes. <laughs> just like the feeling behind it came from the same space. Yeah. And then, you know, there were a few moments where Moana's like, you know, leaning out on the front of the ship and it kind of 
made me think of the moment with Ariel on the rock. So it was like visual cues in the songs too, like were repeated. Right, right. I can definitely see that. <laughs> I don't know where it'll go, but I I don't think that the Broadway musical is ever really going to leave animation, like truly. For a while, it's true, Pixar took it in its own way, and they were having lots of success with that. But then when in the moment Disney brought back brought it back to its roots, everyone's like, yay! <laughs> so, like, the people coming in from our generation were, are just going to remember those and say they're going to be the new creators and say, no, we're going to do something like that because I love that. Yeah, That's something that I love. Let's do that again. So... I don't think that they'll ever leave. Do I think that they'll kind of maybe die down? I think it'll ebb and flow, just as it always has. There's always going to be some that you get more than others, but that's what I think. Yeah, I think these other, like Disney, they have their foot very much squarely in the musical corner. So they, like you said, they can ebb and flow between this one's a musical, this one's not a musical. I mean, like Wreck-It Ralph, for example, was not a musical. Um, They have realized smartly over time that not every single one of their animated films warrants being a musical and having all of those songs. Thank goodness, because I think we can think of some previous (laughs) 101 Dalmatians 2 that did not necessarily need songs, but because it was expected at the time, they just had songs. So I think they've matured now. Now, as far as the other studios, I think other studios have sort of realized their place that, you know, that's Disney's thing. Doesn't mean we can't do it, but we don't necessarily need to, and that's not required. And I think overall that is better for animation, and I'm not discouraging other studios from attempting to do musicals, but they're just like with anything I think I'm glad it's not a prerequisite anymore that you need to have musicals or songs in your film yeah I mean it's kind of like be true to you that whole thing like if you're good at musicals then do a musical if you're good at not like just normal stage stuff then just do that so I feel like it's when people are are forced to you know shoehorn a musical shoehorn a song in here that it just doesn't work because nobody was wanting that from the beginning but here's a question that i have after you mentioned wreck it ralph so wreck it ralph 2 is the next movie to come out and it everybody knows because of d23 that there is going to be all of the disney princesses are going to be in on this movie and so i'm thinking i wonder if they're going to have some giant song i think i think that might happen in a it just seems like the opportunity for a really good sort of self-deprecating joke, which Disney likes to do sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Enchanted was one big joke about the whole... There were a lot of jokes about constant singing. Right. Totally, uh, totally. And so I think they're all, like, every once in a while, Disney has to poke fun, of, fun at itself. And especially if you have all the princesses, like, in an animated room together. Yeah. <laughs> Like, what song would that be? Because everyone has, like, very different songs, too. If they were, like, they were, like, fighting with each other to have, like, the, like, the dominant voice. <laughs> um, we are not a choir. <laughs> I am the lead. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the leader. Uh, <laughs> Love it. 
Oh, well, Alex, this has been such a great time with you. Thank you so oh, much for joining us. So much. I was so glad to get to talk to you guys. I love the podcast so much. Anytime I'm driving home, it's a really nice, because uh, it's three hours home. Uh, wow. It's a really nice uh, way to pass the time. Well, we love you for saying that and for just being who you are. You're awesome. Thanks for being a fellow animation addict. Never change. Oh, you guys either. Thank you so much <laughs> for providing this podcast everything I want. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Walt Disney Pictures presents a tale of great wonder, magic, and fantasy. The Sword in the Stone. You will follow the adventures and thrills of the daring, brave young Arthur, a boy who wants to be king, and his guide, Merlin, the wise old wizard. <laughs> and that is what I call a wizard blizzard. On their secret quest for the magical sword. With a little Disney magic, they'll go underwater. Merlin, am I a fish? Racing across the sky. And into a world of enchantment. What'll I do? She won't leave me alone. <laughs> That's a girl squirrel lad and, and a red-headed bat. With this pair, the surprises keep coming. <laughs> there, now you see. I'm not a squirrel. I'm a boy. You good? I tried to tell you. In their search for the sword, nothing will get in their way. And no one can stop them. Not even the wicked sorceress, Madame Mim, Merlin's biggest enemy. Hey, lad, did you know that I can be huge? Oh, it's a classic tale of chivalry, courage, and honor, with a fight to the end for the magical sword that will turn young Arthur into King Arthur. Don't miss Walt Disney's The Sword in the Stone. All right, so as we mentioned before, we're going to be talking about Walt Disney's animated film, The Sword and the Stone. Let's give some general information about this before we dive into reviewing it and talking about it. But all this information, of course, is obtained from Box Office Mojo, IMDb, Wikipedia, and the bonus materials where available. So the studio, obviously, it's Walt Disney Productions. The release date was December 25th, 1963. It was also reissued on April 1st, 1983 in theaters, so... Still wasn't born yet, was not able to see either of those. <laughs> the budget was $3 million, and box office, it made $12 million. So not too bad, but not not amazing. Well, that was during the 1983. Oh, okay. Uh, $12 million in 1983 is a lot different from $12 million today, <laughs> and it was the reissue, so. Ah, Yes, yes. Interesting. Now, some interesting little tidbit. This is actually the first Disney animated film to be made under one single director. Previously, they'd had three, four different directors who were directing various segments. We had one of the veteran animators, Wolfgang, also known as Wooly Ratherman. He's the one who directed this, and actually, he was going to direct all of the Disney films up until the name. It's the fun little fact about good old Wooly. And his sons were actually in this film. We're going to talk a little bit more about that as we go. Gotta love nepotism. So before we dive into the film, it's important to note that this is based on a novel of the same name, The Sword in the Stone, by T.H. White. It was published in 1938. Originally, it was called The Story of Arthur and the Sword in the Stone. Now, Arthurian legends, there are so many of them, and there's not really one main source for King Arthur, the Knights of the Round Table, Sword in the Stone, all of these amazing legends about him and Merlin and 
Actually, so Arthur himself, he is this great king of England of legend, and it was around the 5th, 6th, 7th century BC that supposedly he lived. And there were always like bits and pieces about this guy, but they really started picking up more in medieval times, which I guess back then was still considered medieval times, but around <laughs> the you know, 11th, 12th, 13th century is when in we start getting a times. little... In the times, in the 12th yes. century now. <laughs> <laughs> You're living in the past. <laughs> But around the 12th or 14th century is really when it starts picking up and there's more books and uh, accounts that are documented rather than oral histories and whatnot. But even then, it's very scattered and whatnot. So just wanted to kind of give you the idea of what is happening with Arthurian legend. I'm not necessarily an expert in Arthurian legend, and I know there are lots of people who are. Uh, I wish I would have had time to go and maybe read up on some of the big books about this but just simply didn't have time so we have this novel and at first when I was watching the movie I was sitting here thinking wow one this is pretty boring and the plot is very thin and why are we spending so much time as animals and then going and reading just a little synopsis about this novel that's actually what this whole novel is about it's about his relation a young Arthur's relationship with Merlin and him teaching him by you know transforming into animals and I'm sitting here thinking oh okay they were they were quite faithful to the novel which kind of like <laughs> previous film at Thumbelina, we said the same thing. Like, why did they have these weird subplots with the beetle and the frog and the toad? Well, it was because that was from the adaptation and they stayed very faithful to it. And so we'll talk, I'll talk a little bit about why I didn't necessarily love that. But just if you're wondering, like, where did this come from? It's, you got to thank Mr. T.H. White. Ah, thanks, Mr. T.H. White. I hope he's not a woman. He's a man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. This was, you know, it's interesting. This is the only animated DVD, I'm sorry, this is the only animated Disney movie from the 1960s to not have a platinum DVD, a sequel, a TV show, or a live-action remake. It does have a live-action remake. That is coming. Oh. That is Oh, it's coming. Yes. Well, there goes that. <laughs> we had one that was unspoiled. It was that bad that we just didn't want to touch it. <laughs> but then again, there aren't really that many films from the 60s. I mean, you put that qualifier. It's the only one from the 60s. Yeah, I mean, true. we have this, right, Mary Poppins, which is kind of a hybrid. We also have uh, The Jungle Book. But uh, it was not necessarily a very heavy you know, era for animated films. We didn't That's get, true. you know, it's not like today where we get one every year. That's true. Or multiple times <laughs> every year. Oh, you know, the first it opens up first off with the Disney storybook. And I just wanted to see if you could name a couple of the other movies that have started with a Disney storybook. <laughs> All right. Without peeking, no cheating. Just off the top of my head, we have Snow White, Pinocchio. We have Cinderella. We have Sleeping Beauty. The Jungle Book, I believe. I think Robin Hood. I know Enchanted. Um, let's see. The old book. What else? What else? Winnie the Pooh? Yes. Winnie the Pooh is a storybook. It's just like a normal book rather than like a jewel-encrusted book. Right. <laughs> I want um, a jewel-encrusted book, though. <laughs> who doesn't, right? And I think... I mean, I'm trying to think of some modern ones that would do it more just out of to be funny or kind of like reminiscent blast from the past. 
I don't think... Well, you've done really well. I don't think Tangled has one. No. Okay. Um, I feel like there's one more, like, princessy film that I'm missing. Not according hmm. to this list, actually. Okay, not princessy. All right, well, I'm just going to stop there. And Here's what you missed. The Song of the South, though, I'm... Ah. <laughs> okay, grumble, grumble, grumble. Yeah. grumble. <laughs> Multiple grumbles on that one. And The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. Ah, man. Okay. We also well, have pretty good. the Taylor movie, A Christmas Carol, and Beauty and the Beast, Belle's Magical World. <laughs> Gosh, man. Well, some of these are. I know. We talked canon. Yeah. I think I got the canon, right? You totally did, right? yeah. Okay. Okay. That's the only, that's only what I was actually thinking. I wasn't thinking of I know, I know. direct DVD. No, I was very impressed. The, aside from Song of the South and Mr. Toad, you know. But Song of the South is not canon. It's true. Part of the Disney canon. Even- Think about it. So, wah, wah. wah, wah. <laughs> but I'll you did it. good. Great job. Thank I'm you. very Thank impressed. How did you guys do? Let us know in the comments of this post. All right. So, I, I first start out this movie and it was just, it almost really surprised me just because I was like, and we're singing right away. The whole narrative is just like a song and it was just, it was weird to me. And I'm the singing person. Like, yes. it was just weird. I was like, okay, I'll go with it. But I didn't expect that. Yeah, you know, this song really, it was like we said, so it starts with the classic storybook opening, and sometimes these had songs, and sometimes they didn't. And this one is one of those songs, and it doesn't really work for me. As I was listening to this film, and I was kind of looking back at some of the songs, I, I actually completely forgot that some of these songs existed, and this was one of them, and it was not very memorable. These were done by the Sherman Brothers. But and then the actual score was done done by George Bruns, who he has a very, very, very distinct style. Like as I was listening to this, you know, not only is it the Xerox era, which that is very visually impressive in that it stands out and it's very cohesive. Like you can put this in a very specific era because Mm -hmm. of those films. Like it starts more or less with 101 Dalmatians and ends with Robin Hood. So it's kind of about 14 years or, you know, 10 to 15 years where we really see the Xerox era. But at the same time, we have George Bruns, who's this composer who has has a very, very distinct style of music. And as I was listening to this movie, there were parts where I'm like, wow, that's totally Sleeping Beauty. Because even though Sleeping Beauty used Tchaikovsky's, um, even though Sleeping Beauty used Tchaikovsky's ballet, there were still other pieces that George Bruns enhanced and added. So I'm like, wow, that's definitely Sleeping Beauty. Whoa, this is 100% 101 Dalmatians. Wow. This is from this film. It just, it, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it was definitely the style of the films from this era. And it doesn't necessarily allow them to stand out individually as far as aesthetically and musically, which is fine. Um, it's just sort of like Alan Menken, you know, he's the guy. And so a lot of the music, you know, is more or less the same. But I feel like those have motifs and they're able just this orchestration and the scores are so vastly different mm-hmm. from film to film that they, yes, it's Alan Menken, but it's like one's in Agrabah and other one's in this. And yeah. you know, it's just, they're different. All this is just kind of, you could basically swap out the score for each one of these and it would work. So that was, I guess, one thing that 
was a negative that stood out because I do like his music and it is very nostalgic to hear his notes. But at the same time, like it was distracting in that I was like, oh, yeah, him. That's what he sounds <laughs> that's like. What, that's him. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I kind of because it is in this whole box of the Xerox era, it was just kind of like a timepiece, as you were saying. It's it's going back to this era. This it, it made it kind of seem cohesive like the brand. So, like, brand reinforcement, I guess you could say. But it was, I don't know. I like this era. I know a lot of people give it a hard time, and a lot of people are like, ugh, the Xerox era. But I really like it. I think some of the the artisticness of it, even though they did, quote-unquote, take the cheaper route, um, they still were able to get quite a bit of just life out of their characters and out of their backgrounds. Yeah, and you know, this is an era where budgets are much smaller comparatively. The films are less grandiose, but and we're kind of making it worth. And this is the tail end of the Walt Disney era. And as I'm watching this, I just feel just a lack of Walt Disney's touch on this. Mm-hmm. It seems like if he really would have been, and I was reading, you know, there were times where he was calling in and approving, you know, story meetings and whatnot. And that I feel is is very apparent because there's times where it just it something feels off and the Disney magic is missing and I'm just going to jump to the end but I feel that this film like plot wise it's very thin and there's a lot of fluff like all the the three, three different times that he's turning to an animal is just fluff and really nonsense like yes I'm supposed to be teaching you a lesson but he's talking about books and yes he's teaching him practical lessons of of love and whatnot but <laughs> uh, I think going into that he didn't really expect his message to be oh we're gonna learn about love today because there's these twitter pated squirrels over there <laughs> and as each one of those little episodic moments gets over I, I feel like the plot hasn't progressed anymore and i'm not anywhere closer to where i need to be with this relationship between merlin and and arthur well they've they're progressing and we're seeing their relationship but as far as arthur's progression i don't see any of it and really as i was watching this the last five minutes are the most exciting and the best because that's the part where they're at the they're at the tournament and the sword is gone and he has to go get the sword and then he find you know it's missing and it's he has to go find the sword the inn is closed and then he has to go try to get the sword out of the stone because that's the only thing available to him and just everything that happens and encompasses that scene is so exciting to me that it really makes me sad that they didn't really build that up because one thing about this film is he just pulls it out and we're done and he's king and he's really not prepared to be king and we didn't feel or see much growth in him well and then Merlin also just like he just like leaves (laughs) he's like whatever I'm mad at you for you know not wanting to study and like instead of uh, and and instead you want to be a knight whatever bye and he like goes off to bermuda and like what (laughs) yeah we'll talk let's talk we'll talk about the individual character so let's talk about first our our main character which is wart also known as arthur so I think he's a really great protagonist. I think he has a lot going for him at the beginning in the fact that he's this orphan. He's kind of been adopted or taken in by this family who are all about them and bringing the son Kay to knighthood and then hopefully to be the king. Because like we talked about in that little prologue, they mentioned, all right, well, we had the sword, the stone. It was basically whoever pulled the sword out was going to be the king. But then that never happened. And we kept trying and trying and trying and that never happened. So eventually it was forgotten and lost. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like the one ring. Yeah. <laughs> and so I really like the visualization that people 
almost forgotten that this thing existed and so they needed to come up with another way to pick a king because i mean hey we can't have these temporary stewards leading the country forever so eventually they say okay let's let's get a move on with this and so they had this big tournament to pick a king okay so that sets everything up and he's in this situation that it's pretty good i mean he's living in a castle but he has all these chores he's a little bit cinderella in a way not that he's a slave in his own home but he's more or less just a slave and but he's very positive and happy like a very happy boy Mm -hmm. and he's just so excited to be given the opportunity to be a squire which I love because, you know, sometimes we're not put in the best situation and just having a great attitude about it can help you get through. And we see him later with Merlin when, you know, he's like, hey, I'm the squire because the other boy gets sick. And Merlin gets really, really upset and mad at him. And and it's like, well, what did you expect? What did you want from me? But like, this is this is a good thing. This is like the best I have to look forward to because he doesn't have the omniscience and, you know, the forward vision like he can't move into the future like Merlin so to him he's stuck in the present he sees like this is a great thing Merlin I don't understand why you're not supporting me in this and so I really like him as a character I like his design it's very simple and pure and I think he's a he's a good character I just miss that we didn't get more growth out of him from like where he starts to where he ends do you know what's interesting about his character is he was actually voiced by three different boys and mm-hmm. as we were mentioned before, so the first one, his name was Ricky Sorensen, and then his voice changed. Puberty. <laughs> and so he's like, ah, crap. And so he's just like, um, hey, sons, <laughs> I got two, I got two boys, whatever, we'll just use them. And so he brought in his sons, Richard Ritherman and Robert Ritherman. Like one voice is a little bit more scratchy and the other one is a little bit more clean. And you can kind of see at the very end that when the voice changes and he's like, oh, Archimedes, I wish Merlin was here. And then the camera cuts and Arthur shouts with a different voice like, Merlin, Merlin. Like, it was just like, oh, I can kind of hear that. <laughs> See, my question is, why didn't they just re-record Ricky's voice? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, he can't have done that much, maybe. But even then, just just do a clean sweep. Yeah, I mean... And why did you have to bring both sons in? Were you worried that one versus the other was going to go through puberty? And so let's have a backup. (laughs) Instead of having a backup, we're just going to interchange all three. It's really bizarre. I mean, to be honest, I did not necessarily, without having pre-knowledge that this existed, I wouldn't really have noticed. Yeah. And I had to go back and like look and like, oh yeah, I see that. Yeah. Well, what's funny is he ended up using, I think it was Richard on The Jungle Book. And so Richard mm-hmm. came back and he was like, yeah, you did a good job, son. So we'll have you be the voice of, of Mowgli here. Other son, you did bad. Go wash the dishes. <laughs> Sucks to be you. I just thought it was good. I loved Arthur. I thought he was very sweet. And he was just like, had that just great, as you were saying, that great outlook on life. I, I thought that his back and forth relationship with Merlin was just weird. I just thought Merlin was a was they didn't have a very good chemistry between the two of them. Like Merlin was just kind of out too far out of the box for and they'd never really established that these are guys are actually there's a a heart here. Yeah, so Merlin's a very difficult character because he's this character like the genie where he's able to traverse time. Yeah. And 
go back in the future and forward in the future. And as a result, he has this knowledge of stuff that exists, either whether it's scientific principles like gravity or future things like the discovery of the island Bermuda that he just willy-nilly mentions. And every single time, Wirt is like, Bermuda? Gravity? <laughs> it's, I mean, he does that like four or five times. I'm like, okay, this joke is getting old. And so he's just like this one note guy where he's just mentioned, he's on, he's one of those creative geniuses that is so smart because obviously he's a wizard and he's able to go to all these places and see all these things. And he's so learned that he's just on another plane and it's almost slightly unrelatable. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, he has a very much, uh, he's very rash and hot tempered mm-hmm. where something just triggers him and he's like, fine, you can do it yourself. Fine. Archimedes is going to train you. And I think it's fine because people aren't perfect. And so I like seeing him have this like rashness, negative quality to him because otherwise he's just this altruistic Gandalf character mm-hmm. who's perfect, <laughs> you know, and can not do anything wrong, you know? So we do see that he has this negative side to him, but at the same time, he doesn't grow. He's the same character from the beginning as, as he is at the end. Yeah. Um, and I know it sounds like I'm totally bashing this movie. I'm not. I'm just trying to like take it from a critical eye of things that I noticed from character development side. Um, so, yeah, I feel that as far as like when they're introduced, you know, he has this premonition and knowledge that Arthur's going to be the king. Right. Mm-hmm. And so he takes him under his figurative wing because <laughs> he never to a bird so it's, it's figurative and he wants to train him in tutoring because he sees the situation that he's in and it's interesting because it seems that Merlin is not able to see how this all comes to pass because when like like that part we mentioned where he becomes the squire he gets really upset and doesn't appreciate it right when I mean actually through becoming a squire is how he's able to pull a sword from the stone and become the king so you should be excited for that moment but he's not but from the very beginning, it's like, I want to teach you. I want to train you. You need to have education and all the important things of the world. And that really, from the very beginning to the end of their training sessions, there's really nothing progressed there as far as their relationship goes. It's it's very – the relationship is just very sanitized and pure and clean, and that's it. Yeah, it's very surface. I think one of the, as I was thinking about the difference between he and the genie, because I mean, he even comes back in the, in the Hawaiian shirt, you know, it's like, <laughs> no, he, he made that popular before the genie. Did. I know. So the G, they, the genie, they took Merlin's character and they said, okay, let's do that. But somehow like change and make better what they didn't. And I feel like the, the main thing that they did because the genie himself is so out of this world, but he needed something. And he needed somebody to make the wish to set him free. So that Merlin didn't need anything. And I feel like that was one of the major Mm -hmm. misses Mm -hmm. is they could have made it seem like, I mean, they could have gone on the whole, you know, he doesn't have friends and therefore, you know, because he's so out of this, but, you know, Mm -hmm. Wart will be his friend and, you know, create those little moments of like, hey, thanks for, you know, filling that need. But, Thanks for being big brother. <laughs> right. But he's, that was the major miss for Merlin, I believe, is because no matter what, who we are, we all have our own, like, our own need. We have something that needs to be filled, and they just never showed that, and um, it, it was a real miss, I believe. But yeah. other than that, I felt like the whole time, it was... 
it's that same formula that it is in the Jungle Book in that it's pretty clean. Like the it's episodic and it just goes like these three movies along with Robin Hood are just very a lot of episodes in there and it doesn't have a clear, you know, a clear three act story. Um, it's just kind of like do 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 do, and then this happened, and then this happened. So um, they kind of all fit into that pot. But I felt like I can appreciate it for what it is, just being a simple movie. Um, but I do, I I would have liked there to have been more. Yeah, Jungle Book to me is a better character because there is that growth and that relationship, especially with Mowgli and Baloo and even Bagheera get thrown in. And it's very complicated Mm -hmm. and stressful at times. And they each have their own independence that sends them one way or another, especially Mowgli, who wants to kind of do what he wants to do. And he thinks he knows best when he really doesn't know the jungle. While this, it's just very flat. And I remember watching it. And 15 minutes into it, I look at my, you know, I'm watching on my phone on Amazon and I click and it's only 15 minutes in. I'm like, really? And so I start watching more and more and more and more and I click again. I'm like, okay, we have to be at least halfway. Only 30 minutes in. I'm like, wow, this movie is so slow. And it, it was almost painful because majority of the film is spent with these three different segments of turning into animals and they get smaller and smaller as we go the fish one is is probably the fish and the squirrel ones are the biggest mm-hmm. and then the bird one is for a little bit but then it transforms into the madame min sequence so and and as i'm sitting here and they're turning into fish and i'm sitting here thinking okay merlin like why are you doing this if he's to be the king how does turning into a fish help him you know you're putting him into danger because not only does he have to learn new mechanics on how to move but he's also placed in an environment where you're not the top of the food chain as a human you are so you can get away with doing stupid stuff but as a fish you're really the bottom of the food chain or somewhere near the bottom and that big old barracuda comes along and he's not equipped or able to handle it so that was quite frightening (laughs) to be honest yeah and And at the very end he's like well that wasn't the point i'm like what was the point (laughs) There was no yeah. point to that whole thing. I mean, you're just going to, like, just let him see if he goes up against the giant pike and lives. You know, it's like, eh, we'll see. Mm-hmm. It's like, this guy's supposed to be king. You're supposed to be taking care of him. But, uh, no, you're just going to, eh, he'll get by. <laughs> yeah. Jeez. Not. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm sitting here and I'm just like, what was the point of that scene? Because that scene comes and goes. And I don't feel that there was really much growth. There was really much that happened. And then we kind of go back to these interstitial scenes that are back at the castle. And was that the scene? When does the um, the pots and the pans? Is that after the squirrels? That is after the fish. Okay, yeah. So he's like, oh, don't worry about it. You don't have to do any chores. Let me handle it for you. So he does this magic, you know, come on, bucket mop broom. Flora says, clean up the room. And off we go. It's very much a mix of Sleeping Beauty and Snow White of like cleaning things and having magical things clean them more or less. And so he comes back and they're still cleaning, which who knows how long they've been gone. My question is, how, how do they have so many dishes? Yes, can I say that? (laughs) I said it for you. (gasps) You did. I was thinking the same thing. I'm like, why do we have so many dishes here? And why are they so dirty? And 
I really, I, I, I'm more interested in the fact that how did these guys get a castle? <laughs> I mean, are they royalty in a way? I mean, it's a very, very much a meager castle that's falling apart, you know, especially with that West Wing that they give Merlin as his home. Right. Uh, it's dilapidated to be for sure, which is why we need Kay to be the king. But yeah, why so many dishes? It really doesn't make sense to me. I understand if you're a total slob, but there's really only, what, three, maybe four of them, because there's that one guy. Well, okay, so there's the dad, there's Kay, there's, it seems to be some sort of maid, who's <laughs> yeah, the same yeah. voice as Ducky in Hundred One Dalmatians. <laughs> then there's the the other knight character who comes by every once in a while. He's the one who's the bearer of good news that there's going to be a tournament. And then there's the supposed other boy who's the squire who we never hear. But there has to be more people living here based on the number of dishes or maybe not. I don't know. Maybe they're just... That is a Disney theory for you, my friends. <laughs> How many people actually lived in this castle? Well, and I mean, they have been... Castles were like in the family for years, you know, so they, you know, you never know. Like maybe at one point in time they, or maybe they're just squatting. Maybe that's what it is. You know, I'm a sir, I'm a knight, but hey, I can't... <laughs> Everybody left this one from the last rampage, and so we're just going to squat here. <laughs> you know what? I'm sure that this is something that is very much established in Arthurian legend because, you know, in Arthurian legend, Sir Kay and Sir Ector, they are legit, yeah. and they are King Arthur's foster brother um, and father, but as well as some of the first Knights of the Round Table. So this is where I'm sure if you are one of these Arthurian legend buffs that you're like, oh my gosh, you have no idea. But please send us an email, send us a voicemail and let us know. That's where it really is a blind spot in my vision. But from the film perspective, we're not given much information about this, which that's fine. That's not the point. But that's kind of the whole movie as as we go is we're just not given a lot. Yeah. But then don't have a lot to work with. Character-wise, plot-wise, song-wise, music-wise, yes. Can we talk about Owl? What? Archimedes! What? 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 what, what? <laughs> <laughs> Who? <laughs> Who? He's what? really good. What, what? I think he's he's one of the better characters. And this, Chelsea, we need to start doing a Disney theory a week. Because okay. I just looked this one up on YouTube, and there is no Disney theory on Archimedes. What? <gasps> what he is, who he is. Because is he just... A very educated owl, if, if the case, know. that's awesome. Or is he a transformed human who chooses to live as an owl or is trapped as an owl? Hmm. These are interesting because it's like, oh, he's, is he actually Archimedes that decided to be an owl? Ooh. And he's like, okay. <laughs> I officially am going to take this on as a Disney theory. I'm going to post it on the YouTube channel. Probably not by the time that this podcast comes out, but maybe within the next week. And I'm going to enlist the help of the patrons and the Roto Writers to brainstorm all the ideas. So let's get ready guys. out who this owl mm -hmm. is. Archimedes. And let's see if this is a good Disney theory. And if you want, you know, on our next episode, I'll include a link in the show notes. And if you like it, we can continue and make that a series that we continue to do. Because who doesn't love a good Disney theory? I love Disney theories. So, okay, Chelsea, so answer the question. So what do I think? Yeah. See, knowing he, he is the only bird, fowl, that is able to speak. And so I think he he was once a human. 
are there many birds or fowls in this film? Well, I mean, they... I mean, we have Madame Wim who turns into a bird or fowl at one point in time. We have the hawk, but that's basically it. <laughs> but so, even then, like, you look at all of the other characters, all of the other animals, none of them speak. And so I feel like in order to have the ability to speak, you have to have at once, at one point in time, lived as a human. So I'm mm. going to say that he's a transformed human. And whether or not he is the original Archimedes or not uh, is yet to be determined, but that is what I'm going to say. Um, because he never actually, like, says anything bad about humans, ever. He's just, he always, I mean, he's like, oh, if men were he's meant to fly. very defensive of being a bird, they, but he knows how to fly. Right. So it's like, if men were meant to fly, they would have wings. And so that's why he has wings. Did he want to fly? I don't know. I don't know. See, I think he's just a very, very educated owl because he's very defensive of his bird status. He, mm-hmm. he feels that he has everything that Merlin has minus the magical abilities. He has all the intelligence. He can read. He can do all that. But then when Merlin is trying to teach him how to fly, he gets super offended because have you ever flown before? No. I'm the bird. Let me handle this. And this leads to yet another grumpy Merlin moment. So do you think that Merlin because- actually just like zapped him with his you know, wand and said, hickitus pickitus, now you can speak? You know, that's what you're going to have to wait to see the YouTube mm. video for. Mm-hmm. There we go. <laughs> I had a lot of interesting things about this. Um, there are a lot of different theories that un- un- unanswered questions, I guess you could say. First off, the whole... I want to go to Madame Mem now. The <laughs> We're just jumping. But yes. Madame Mem... Which, first off, is everybody remembers Madame Mim. She's probably the most yes. iconic person of, well, ex- with aside from the female squirrel that gets shafted, <laughs> everybody remembers Madame Mim. Like, because yes. she's just so When you're typing in Sword in the Stone, I was trying to, to type up something just to do some research. Sword in the Stone, which is one of the very first things that comes up. <laughs> everybody wants to know who this girl she's is. She's awesome. I see, I never had this movie growing up, but, and thankfully, because watching it now, I'm like, hmm. I feel like even then I wouldn't have been that interested in it. But I always remember the Madame Mim scene and how cool I thought she was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's, I really like her. She's very out of the box and just does her own thing. But my question is, what is Merlin's relationship with her? Like, how do they know each other? Like, I mean, they're both wizards and so they both are running in the same, you know, circles apparently. But i I don't know. I feel like it goes a little bit deeper. I think they were. I think they were a thing, and probably exes. Really? Yes, I believe this because I think Merlin ended it because she cheated. Because here's what happened: they would go through, and they're like giving all their rules and everything, and it is rule Merlin's only rule: no cheating. Right after she says no disappearing. So I think he disappeared <laughs> on her and just like left and then she cheated and then they were, he came back and she was like, what? And that's how it all ended. This is my theory. Well, looks like Chelsea needs to do a Madame Mim theory for the YouTube channel, which so. would be amazing. I think so. <laughs> Ooh, okay. We're like slowly developing our arsenal of, and I looked this up. No one's done it yet. So even better. Even better. Um, (laughs) I I think that I like that theory a lot. I never would have considered that. But I think the way that it's presented, I still just think "Eh, they're acquaintances. She's bad. He's good. 
and off we go. So they don't actually like say like that she's how they know. Well, each other. she says that she's bad, right, all the time. Well, and he constantly is reinforcing that he's good. And then we have Sir Ector, who thinks how does protest too much. He thinks Sir Ector thinks that that Merlin is bad because you know when the dishes are washing themselves, he walks in. What sort of black magic is this? The blackest <laughs> magic of the every, kind. <laughs> every sort of magic that has that happens around him is evil and bad. And Merlin's trying to say, "No, I'm a good wizard. Actually, I'm a good wizard. Hey, I'm actually really good." But that does not fly. No. With Sir Ector, it's just all it's all witchcraft, <laughs> wizardcraft. <laughs> So, let's talk about the wizard's duel with Madame Mim. I think this is one of the most fun scenes because we really get to see this battle of wits. There's all these really funny rules where it's only animals, no cheating, no weird things like pink dragons, yada, yada, yada. And they just have to basically one-up each other. And it keeps escalating and escalating. And I just love how creative they are. And one thing that we learn while they're becoming fish and different animals is that you know, you kind of have these natural instincts as whatever animal that you have taken on. So when Wart is a fish, he has the tendency to go and just like eat little bugs that are whatever are around him. And so in the wizard's duel, they're able to take advantage of those little quirks and nuances of each of the individual animals to their advantage. For example, when Madame Mim's an elephant, Merlin turns into a mouse and elephants are supposedly scared of mice. So she freaks out and off we go. So that's what I I love because it's just taking all of these different uh, nuances of each of the individual animals and playing them against each other until we escalate to the ultimate, which I don't think there's any better thing to be than a flu virus <laughs> or a germ. I mean, that was why didn't you just go straight to the jugular? Right. <laughs> right. That was awesome. I I agree. But he is the smarter one. And so I think he always knew that he had that in his back pocket and that was the way to win. But he just wanted to string her along a little bit and have some fun with it because she's all about games. As she mentions, you know, when she turns into a cat and she's going to eat wart. But she's all about those games and wants to play. And so he's like, OK, we're going to make her think that she's the winner. And eventually she's going to cheat again, as she always does. She starts it off with cheating and she ends with cheating. And he says, all right, enough's enough. I'm not going to cheat, but I'm definitely going to tear you down. And hey, in a few weeks, you'll get better. See you later. <laughs> Have fun with that. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know what I think is actually interesting is when they initially come upon Madame Mim is that Archimedes is really scared. Yeah. They don't, Madame Mim. They don't, ex they don't talk about that, which, also, no. which goes into reasons like why I'm so interested in their relationship. Like why? That's another Disney theory add that to the mix like why is she so bad because she's truly like evil but even then she just comes off as such a goofball that she never really seems like a match for merlin mm -hmm. um i mean and in the only times that she's able to one-up him is through cheating which i guess is all's fair in love and war but yeah i would have liked see there's so many good characters here that like i feel so throughout the film, there's no real driving sense of like anything foreboding or anything bad's going to happen. And then we stumble upon Madame Mim literally in the last 20 minutes. And it's like, oh, Madame Mim, ooh, 
and and she's not like the ultimate bad guy but she's that's like really the climax of oh we're in a bad situation Mm -hmm. and I would have loved to maybe have her introduced very at the beginning maybe transformed to some sort of animal maybe she was like that barracuda and like a purple barracuda or whatever that thing was Mm -hmm. you know I would have loved to seen her more or even just mentioned present or mention or just some sort of foreboding it doesn't have to be her but there needs to be some sort of foreboding force that we need to overcome because really there's nothing his life is more or less fine he's doing the dishes he's training to be a squire an hour later it's more or less exactly the same there's nothing it's not like oh that we know that he's the he is the king and if he doesn't like there's no ticking clock that says okay if he doesn't pull this out by a certain time it's over mm-hmm. you know the last petal falls and i feel we needed something like that to to drive the momentum and we just don't have it and like i said literally the last five minutes are so exciting and so awesome. And I would have loved to have seen more of that dynamic stretched out, but unfortunately we don't get it. Yeah. Well, let's, let's talk about the, the squirrels for just a minute because we're running out of time and I just want to make sure we talk about them. I think when everybody thinks about this movie, they think about the squirrel part. I mean, yes. even the fish is not that big of a deal. The bird also not that big of a deal. She actually forgot about the whole fish scene. And the, the bird scene is so short that it just, it leads very quickly into the Madame Mim stuff, which overshadows it. Right. And I think, and the, with the squirrel, the reason why everybody remembers it is because it's like, you feel for this girl. Like she just fell in love with what she thought was her biggest, her best catch out there. And, and they end up saying that, you know, squirrels mate for life, which is not true, (laughs) but (laughs) (laughs) you know, it makes for a much better story. So it, she just is like, totally hurt distraught and overcome with all these these terrible feelings and loneliness and you really feel for it you're like what a jerk (laughs) to be like merlin is a jerk to like put both he and war in those positions where they could you know steal away the heart and and leave such true damage yeah, it's pretty sad because you, she's just an innocent bystander who thinks she's found her match and she's so excited because he is such a squeeze. <laughs> but yeah, it's it, that's life, unfortunately. But as they're leaving, I mean, they just keep having these foreboding, very sad panning shots of her where she's just sniffle, sniffle, <laughs> sniffle, sniffle. <laughs> I know. Sniffle, sniffle. It's it, it, it's one of the only moments that really tugs at your heartstrings and you feel bad. And it's but it's like a weird thing because you're like, ew, you're a squirrel. <laughs> He's a boy. Get out of here. This isn't going to work. And I actually don't want it to work for both him and Merlin. Like, man, the squirrel world, <laughs> the women are very forward. Very. This is not what I'm used to in the real world with humans. But those squirrels, those ladies, culture. they know what's up. They got it going on. Right. When they see something. They like like a moth to the flame. <laughs> they are there, <laughs> and I, th- I thought that was kind of cool. But at the same time, you you you're rooting for Merlin and War, and you see like what the heck? No, this isn't the game plan. Get away! You kind of just want them to like get away as soon as possible, and they're honestly like leeches. You cannot pull themselves away, and so that adds to the comedic moments. And then when they ultimately really just turn to humans and totally distance themselves, it's. Then you start, like, the tables completely turn. I went from not caring about the annoying squirrel to, oh, <laughs> that's sad. That's sad. Because she, like, 
Like, you can just see the hurt in her. And it's like, oh, I'm sorry, Squirrely. All right, so let's wrap this up with our thoughts on the film. I mean, Chelsea, would you like to take the stage? As a final note, I give it about a two and a half stars. It's not one that I really feel like pulling out every once in a while, but it's also not one that I feel like I would ever turn off if it were on. Like, two and a half out of five stars is very neutral for me. Like, meh, oh, cool, all right. I really like the music. It's fun. It's, it's, this is the Sherman Brothers, you know? They always just come up with really, like, cute little things. So I like that. But all in all, like, it's not one that I feel the need to go back and watch a lot, but I like it, you know? I guess that's where I'm at. So I'm going to be just very anti-Morgan. Like, normally I'm always, like, the lowest I'll go for the most part is, like, two and a half stars, which what you said is neutral. But for this one, just as I was watching it, I couldn't get into it. I just always felt that it was dragging, that it was slow, that the plot was thin. What was the point of this movie, except for the last five minutes? If that's the case, we should have made this a short. And just it's it's completely unmemorable for all of those reasons there's no character development i feel that they focus on all the wrong things like yes this is an adaptation of that story but as i'm realizing that story like they focused on the wrong elements of that story i haven't read it but it seems that the more exciting elements actually deal with his relationship with sir ector and maybe a little bit merlin but not on these weird teaching moments and, you know, the fight for Kay and him trying to be king through this tournament and then pulling the sword out of the stone. Those are really like the cool, exciting moments of this. And I hope that with this live action remake they're going to make, this is actually the one live action remake where I'm like, hmm, I'm actually excited to see this because I hope they just completely flip this on its head and do it justice and tell a really cool story. Because there's so much potential here because it is Arthurian legends. Yeah. Like, legend there's so much source material like why do we just have to stick to the book the sword and the stone right i mean when once upon a time went there it just was not enough so let's redo this right Mm, indeed so the the songs i love the sherman brothers but these songs are just no good they're i just don't like them hijitus fidgetus it's catchy but at the same time like please tell me any of the lyrics because it is so wonky and hard to sing what makes the world go round like it's it's okay the most befuddling thing i actually forgot existed and the sword in the stone opening sequence just is not memorable in any way so I, i don't love the music and i wish the characters had more motives and things that really were pushing the plot. I wish there was just more of this like foreboding sense of something to, to give us a reason for this movie to exist because at the very end of it, he pulls the sword out of the stone and there, he has no stakes. Like he doesn't know it exists. He touches it and just on a whim, like, woo, I did it. And even then it's, I would have liked there to be so much more lead up to that moment rather than just like by chance or by accident. And maybe that's not how it happened, Arthurian legend, but I feel like for a movie, we maybe needed a little more. And for those reasons, I have to give this movie two stars because I didn't really grow up watching this movie. And now watching this again, I kind of know why. It, it just doesn't do it for me. It's really weak narratively, and the story is just not there. And I just love the last five minutes, maybe the last 20 with the Madame Mim stuff, and I wish they could have just taken that last 20 minutes, really redeveloped it and stretched it out and given us so much more, and it really could have been good. Well, you're a hobbit. 
<laughs> All right, so let's jump into the voicemails. Hi, Rotoscopers. It's Bethany. I was calling in because I absolutely love The Sword of the Stone. I feel like it is one of the most underrated Disney movies of all time. I read the source material a couple years ago, The Once and Future King, and I just love the Arthurian legend, and the movie actually follows the book pretty well. There's one little episode that they cut that in the book, Arthur is turned into an ant, and he's in this ant colony, and it kind of runs like a giant communist country, which is kind of weird, so I'm glad they cut that out. But yeah, I feel like the animation is really fun because it's in that Xerox style, same as uh, 101 Dalmatians. I feel like the story is really fun. It's really tight. Uh, and I feel like Madame Mim is one of the best villains out there. I feel like, yes, she's funny, but she's also very menacing because she's plum crazy and you never know what she's going to do. That whole sequence with the wizard's duel is a big favorite in my house. I have three little boys that you can probably hear in the background, and they love watching that scene. And we watch the movie and that scene all the time. So I'm so glad you guys are reviewing it. I hope you give it a great review. I would definitely give it a four and a half stars. Love it. Bye. Hey there, Rotoscopers. This is Jared with my review of Disney's The Sword and the Stone. I got to say, this one is an all-time favorite for me. I grew up with this movie and you know, watched it again recently in preparation for leaving this voicemail. And yeah, got to say, it still holds up after all these years. Love the animation, both with its resemblance to 101 Dalmatians and all the visual gags, especially with Merlin. That guy steals the show, most definitely. And, you know, Disney just keeps finding ways to use him. So it's quite obvious that uh, he's a pretty popular character on there. So um, personally, I would give this movie a rating of four out of five stars. I think it does a really good job. Only thing that keeps it from being perfect is I got to say it doesn't have that compelling of a story. Um, doesn't hold my attention as much as some other Disney films, but still some good, clean fun, which I appreciate. But anyway, uh, glad you guys are reviewing this, and uh, maybe you can do a little European island hopping and review Secret of Kells next time. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. But this has been Jared signing off. Hello, this is Alex calling in to give my review of The Sword in the Stone. This is a film that I enjoyed greatly as a child, but doesn't hold up as well today. There are certain aspects of the film that I still enjoy, such as the consistently good animation and the fact that the characters are all around interesting. However, I feel that this is the weakest film among the three that Disney Animation Studios released in the 60s, the other two being 101 Dalmatians and The Jungle Book. I believe that this is why Disney has never given The Sword in the Stone a platinum or a diamond edition. Probably the most disappointing aspect of this film are the songs, which is surprising considering that they are written by the usually excellent Sherman Brothers. I do like that this film takes a unique spin on the King Arthur tale, 
by focusing on him as a young child rather than as an adult, which is much more common in film. Overall, I give this film three and a half stars out of five. I enjoy it, but it's not among Disney's best. Bye. Hello, Rotoscopers. It's Andres here again, and I'm leaving a voicemail for The Sword in the Stone. Right off the bat, I just want to say that this is one of the uh, movies that I was, you know, raised watching. Uh, we, uh, I own the VHS. So growing up, this was a big part of my life, watching this all the time. It was a great movie. I love this movie. My favorite character in the film has to be Archimedes. I know he's grumpy and he's always mad and he's always like, sounds like he's very stubborn, very, very angry. But this movie really made me laugh and he, uh, Archimedes, really made me feel, I think he's the most funniest, funniest character in the movie. Um, especially he got it when he got into it with the Barracuda, the fish. And then not only that, he when he was cracking up, when Merlin was trying to show Wart the airplane and it just, it just, you know, broke and he just started laughing and that was hilarious i think my favorite personally my favorite character in this movie has to be archimedes and he made me laugh throughout the whole movie i think this movie overall is just hilarious um this is one of my favorite films and i really really enjoy it a definite definite solid four stars i'm giving it a solid four stars um not not my favorite not my because there's other movies out there that i rather watch you know replay value i'd love to watch it again but I think a solid four stars. I mean, it says that it's good. It's it's perfect. So, um, but other than that, I really really enjoy this film. Um, so yeah, that's all I have to say. Archimedes was hilarious. Merlin was also funny. And um, thank you guys for uh, for this. Uh, I really appreciate it. So take care, and uh, I hope this goes up on the podcast. Peace. I find delight in the gruesome and grim. Thank you, my boy, but that's nothing, nothing for me. Oh, because I'm the magnificent, marvelous man, Madame Mim. You know what? I can even change that. All right, guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the Animation Addicts podcast. You can check out all the show notes, information, links, rotoscopers.com slash 156. Leave us your reviews there. And also, thanks to everyone who are patrons. We love you. Thank you for your support. If you'd like to look into being a patron, go to rotoscopers.com slash Patreon. And with that, you know where to find us. I'm at Morgan Stradling. Chelsea's at Chelsea Robson on all places, social media. And until next time, we are, we are the Rotoscopers. You're listening to the animation. Hold on. You have some like background noise that I can hear. What? Like a fan or AC unit. Hold on. It's just like ambient noise in the background, kind of like a zzzz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hold on. Let me make sure that my Skype is picking up the correct information. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds like a fan that's like an oscillating fan that comes by. You know, it's like... <laughs> yeah. Uh, because the microphone is using the built-in, not my H4. Is that better? Slightly. Like, I definitely can't hear it, but your voice sound. Keep talking. I just changed it over to my H4, which has my SM58 uh, microphone. You sound like a chipmunk slightly. So maybe s- close out restart or you know what i mean yeah yeah you're like pitched up it's like hello my name is chelsea <laughs> <laughs> hi shelby the <laughs> you're 
you tell? You're like slightly chipmunk territory. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> but it's much better <laughs> as far as the fan. There's no fan, but at least now I sound like a Disney princess for real <laughs> in chipmunk form. <laughs> hey, I mean, you did. they did turn into a squirrel in this film, so <laughs> that's basically the next step. It's true. <laughs> All right, let's try this again. I'll call you back. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, Squirrely. You know, I I was thinking about him. Like, this is why there are no good men around. They've all gone squirrely. That d- obviously didn't go over as I wanted it to. Sorry, I was typing. <laughs> I'm never funny. You're funny. I swear. Morley wanted to do a wizard's duel today, Chelsea, but I don't know if we have time. What are we going to duel? Who is the better man, Eugene or Dimitri? Oh. Shall we do a wizard's duel before we talk about a wizard's duel? Let's do it. Cue it's... the music. What, 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 what's up, boy? What's going on? They're having a wizard's duel. What's that mean? Oh, it's a battle of wits. The players change themselves to different things in an attempt to, to destroy one another. De- de- destroy? But just watch, boy. Just watch. You'll get the idea. Alright, so for those of you who are new to our segment, Wizard's Duel, basically what it is, is the two of us are going to face off in a battle of wits. And on a various variety of subjects, we haven't done this in a while, but now, as mentioned before, it is who is the better man, Dimitri or Eugene? Both are scoundrels, scallywags, but awfully good looking. Mm -hmm. So it's really up to us right now to determine... Who is the better man? So, Chelsea, because I'm a lady, I will let you choose. <laughs> and I'm not. <laughs> um, I'm going to go with Dimitri. Okay, I get you, to Eugene. So, with that, you get first argument. All right. So, the reason why I think Dimitri is the best is because, first off, he come. they both come across as, and start out, as kind of the bad guy, in a way. But I believe, honestly... That Dimitri was never a bad guy. You see it from the very beginning. As he was a child, he was the boy, the boy that opened the wall to try and help the princess and the grandmother escape the castle. And he stayed behind to try and help out. But then, and that's how he ended up with the the music box and whatever. But later on, he's doing all of these things, trying to make money because he's in a broken system. The whole country is bankrupt. And so he is an entrepreneur and he is just trying to do his best to make ends meet. He's just trying to do what he can to make it from the bottom of the barrel to, you know, maybe at least the middle. So I believe that, you know, first off, starting out with his past, that is why he was kind of a a scallywag. Uh, But later on, when he actually takes Anastasia and they travel along their journey, they have this relationship, first off, that they're able to banter back and forth, which I like. He's very quick in his in what he says back to her and they kind of stand off against each other, which I appreciate. So I feel like they're a very good match in that way. Later on, even though he feels like he's doing the best thing because he doesn't think that Anastasia is actually going to like him after she is made princess or duchess again. And so he's like, you know what? I know where I stand. She belongs so much higher than me. So I'm going to, in my heart, take the more gentlemanly route and I'm going to exit peacefully from her life. My business is done. And so he leaves but he comes back and he saves helps her save the day in a way. She ends up saving but he helps her and he's there. And he's super good looking. He's really 
still probably the best good-looking prince, non-prince <laughs> out there. So those are my reasons. All right. So I am going to be talking about Eugene. So Eugene is all about the money. It's very clear that he just wants a sack of gold and a giant castle to live in, which, hey, I don't blame him. A lot of people do, especially when you're in the bottom of poverty and just living, you know, with the scum of the earth. It's not his fault that he's ended up being with the Stabbington brothers and that he's doing what he can. But he is very smart, very cunning, and he's just putting his smart and cunningness to, you know, to bad, which which happens, you know. He's able to infiltrate the castle to steal the most prized possession, which is the princess's crown. I mean, that takes major skills of wits, dexterity, athleticism, all of the above. So he is just everything that you want. And we just need to just pivot him a little bit to use all of those skills for good. Enter Rapunzel. When he meets her, he tries to do his smolder, which is his go-to look because he knows that he's so good looking. He is so good looking that they literally can't get his nose right. His nose right is, his nose is the essence of perfection that it cannot be captured. (laughs) Think about that. It's so perfect that only the hand of God can paint that on a wanted poster. But God created him. So that's why, I mean, his nose in person just looks so good, along with everything else about him. He's the perfect height. He's the perfect build. He has, you know, this perfect, like, tall, dark, and handsome look. He has the smolder, which it is the smolder. It is very, very good. But he meets Rapunzel and she's not wowed by that. I mean, she's a bit naive. She's never met a man before. So she doesn't realize that this is just the quintessential beauty, handsomeness (laughs) of a man. Um, So it takes her a while to actually see that, which she does. But through the essence and just the purity of Rapunzel, like we talked about in our Roto rewatch, she is like this essence of just purity, which helps to make everything the light touches better. She is the light basically personified because like the flower is her, right? And she, by touching him and together through their journeys, he is able to at last see the light and become the perfect ultimate man who has turned from the bad and has gone toward the good. And he marries the princess and he becomes king. Okay, I mean, talk about a journey. There is nothing more to be said about Eugene. He's amazing. He is our king. He is basically a demigod. What the? No. Okay, so here's what you did said wrong with that. Not what you said wrong, but here's what was wrong with Eugene. The fact that Eugene, all he can really think about is his looks. That's really the only thing he has going for him, in, in his opinion, Like, yeah, he can do all those other things, but really the main event is his looks. And that's just not okay. I, that is a peacock in my opinion. I do not approve of peacocks. It is not okay to be a peacock. And, but you look at Dimitri. Never once is he ever considering himself to be a good looking guy or to be somebody that somebody should be impressed with him. He just is who he is. And he doesn't need anybody else to paint his nose right. He doesn't need anybody else to to do anything that would make him you know, feel higher than who he is. He, in fact, is trying to stay under the radar, which I find very endearing. Now, 
Eugene also, I mean, what right does he have to be king? All he has in his back pocket is the fact that he's a thief. Okay, that's a great person to have at your, at, as, as your king. Not, no. Those are my reasons why Dimitri is still better. And to refute that, I mean, saying that just because he is beautiful, that that can take over, that's the only thing that he has, that he's a peacock. I don't completely disagree. I mean, beautiful people are beautiful people and they know it and they should parade around and show it off (laughs) because the world needs more beauty. It's just a fact. Now, Dimitri, you know, he really was stringing the princess along the whole time. He didn't know that she was the Princess Anastasia, but he knew that he wanted his giant sack of rubles at the very end and was going to do anything in his power to get it. There's really nothing special about him other than the fact that he is a con man, Uh, at least while Eugene, he has quite a few skills that he can transform into a variety of other things, which will help to lead the kingdom. In the end, I mean, Dimitri takes Anastasia away from the number one thing that she's been going for, her whole life which is her family he is a cradle robber in the (laughs) fact that this princess finally found her home and like got back into her you know figurative cradle and was like nestled next to her grandma so happy and he snatches her away and takes her away because he is jealous and he does not want anastasia to have anyone other than him so he's quite selfish and not the perfect man final argument is dimitri is better looking. He also is not a peacock. And he is the one who, from the beginning, has always had a good heart. And Eugene Flynn Rider, he goes by so many names because he is basically, like I said, a god here on Earth. He is so perfect. He is amazing. He is smart. He has found his perfect match. And yes, he started at a low place, but he's able to turn it around and just become everything that the princess needs him to be and also everything that he as a man needs to be. I think he has everything going for him. He has the looks, the face, the bod, the humor, the wits, the intelligence, all of that. And and just as a final note, all the women at Disney Animation came in and pointed and said, this is what it takes to be the perfect man. He needs a little of this, a sprinkle of that, a dash of that. And they cr- literally created him. You cannot argue that. <laughs> And I shan't. Okay, guys, let us know in the comments, rotoscopers.com slash 156. Who do you think won this Wizards Duel? And would you like to see more Wizards Duels in the future? Let us know in the comments, and we'll be sure to include them in future shows. 